Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Now you're in London. It's a vile and wicked city. But it's lovely. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites, the podcast in which we talk about Soho and the films that are set there. My name is Dominic DeLaghi and I don't know about you, but I've been in mourning ever since I heard the news that network distribution has gone into liquidation. In case you didn't know them, Network was the absolutely brilliant company that until last week specialised in releasing vintage British films and TV shows on DVD and Blu-ray. They were all about physical media and put out hundreds of old, sometimes really obscure films in lovely quality. These included a fantastic series called The Ealing Rarities, which is an absolute treasure trove of lesser-known Ealing films. They also had a series of 1930s comedies, a 1930s musical series. They released a load of the old witch farces too, and a large chunk of the Jesse Matthews back catalogue. They even asked little old me to write sleeve notes for their recent release of The Sandwich Man, so obviously I think they're great. I can't imagine another company coming forward and filling this hole, so it's a very sad day indeed. I'm off to buy up as much of their stuff as I can find on eBay, and so should you. So as you know at Soho Bites, we try to have a theme for each episode to loosely connect the two halves of the show. In the past, these themes have included record shops, painting, Germans, sandwiches, generational conflict and Class A drugs. So take all of that to its logical conclusion. And the theme for this episode is, of course, tropical birds. At first glance, you might not think there's much mileage in the theme of tropical birds on a show about films set in Soho. But as it turns out, there are at least two Soho films with a tropical bird in the title. There's The Blue Parrot from 1953 and the film that is today's featured film, The Green Cockatoo from 1937, or possibly 1940 or 1947, depending where you live. The birds in the titles of these films are actually the names of nightclubs. And initially, I thought about doing The Blue Parrot and The Green Cockatoo on the same episode as a kind of lame gimmick. But The Blue Parrot is so painfully tedious I really can't be bothered to talk about it. The Green Cockatoo, however, is ace. It stars 29-year-old John Mills as Jim Connor, a Soho nightclub singer whose wayward brother Dave, played by Robert Newton, causes a kerfuffle when he gets on the wrong side of some gangsters. 
I'll be talking to my guest Nigel Smith about that in the second half of the show. And in the first half of the programme, we're talking about actual tropical birds, not the nightclubs named after them. Specifically, ring-necked parakeets. Why are we talking about ring-necked parakeets? Because there are tens of thousands of these little creatures all over London. You may well have seen great green flocks of them swooping around high above or nesting, feeding, squawking loudly in trees in our parks, gardens and cemeteries. And rather like many human Londoners, they're thousands of miles from their original home but have found their place here and blended perfectly into the beauty and chaos of our magnificent city. But how did they get here? And how many are there? Will our indigenous brownish birds be wiped out to be replaced by these little green invaders from another land? All very good questions, and my first guest today has been trying to find out. One morning a few years ago, I had what I thought was a hallucination. Not on crystal meth, but in Crystal Palace. Staring absentmindedly out of the window, I noticed that a tree about 50 metres away was a particularly vivid shade of green and was shimmering weirdly in the sunlight. Like a bad actor doing I can't believe what I'm seeing acting, I rubbed my bleary eyes and peered again at this weird phenomenon. Suddenly, all the leaves took off in unison and launched themselves into the sky, leaving a much duller tree behind. You, as a Soho Bites listener, are a very clever person and have realised that they weren't leaves at all. It was a huge flock of little green parakeets, or parrots. They shot vertically upwards, then all travelling in the same direction, zoomed off overhead and were gone. It felt like I'd seen the Loch Ness Monster. Since then, I've had multiple encounters with these exotic little feathery creatures all over London, including Golden Square in Soho, and it does feel like they're spreading into every corner of the city. You may have heard various urban myths about their origins in London, some of them involving rock stars or film units, and you may swear on your mother's life that you know for a fact how they got here. But does anybody actually know? Are any of the myths true? Well, Nick Hunt is the person to ask. Nick, along with photographer Tim Mitchell, set out on a mission a couple of years ago to discover everything they could about these mysterious visitors from warmer climes. And their investigations led to a book called The Parakeeting of London, An Adventure in Gonzo Ornithology. It's available, of course, in all good bookstores, and there'll be a link to it on the show notes. Nick no longer lives in London, having moved out to the Wild West, or Bristol, as it's known to the locals, so we met up online. Tell me about these birds, I said to Nick, and how many of them are there here in London? Well, they are ring-necked parakeets, sometimes called rose-ringed parakeets. As to how many there are, that's a, it's a hard question to answer. The last figure I saw, I think, off the top of my head, the number was something like 36,000. I think that's breeding pairs. But that was in something like 2012. So 10 years ago, there were 70,000 individual birds. I may be wrong on that, but okay. there were a lot of them. There were tens of thousands of them, for sure. I think we can say many, many birds. <laughs> Lots of them. They seem to have exploded in the last, I don't know, 10, 10 15 years, maybe? Is that, is that true, or is that just perception? That's definitely true. They do seem, just kind of anecdotally, to suddenly appear in an area. I mean, they're certainly not, it's not kind of incremental... I think they discover a new green space, a new park, a route down the canal, a nice cemetery, 
and it, it goes very quickly from people never having seen parakeets there to suddenly they're they're everywhere yeah the areas that you talk about all seem to be these kind of little enclaves of green inside urban areas yeah one of the things we did for the book which is quite fun is just look at the map of london and look at the green spaces almost like these islands in a in a sea of gray and you can sort of see it from a parakeet's eye view that there are these you know london obviously has huge amounts of green space it's a very green city there's huge parks and often wildlife corridors especially canals and, and rivers so it seems like they they kind of jump from one of these islands of green to another your book before I go any further it's called have it in my hand it's called the parakeeting of london an adventure in gonzo ornithology i thought gonzo was a type of homemade porn is that what, how's it been oh. used in this context? So I think before it was a, a term for porn, it was gonzo journalism coined by, I think, Hunter S. Thompson. It really means a, a very subjective style of journalism where the, the reporter is completely immersed in the subject matter and isn't pretending to be objective. And this term gonzo ornithology wasn't, didn't come from myself or Tim, who was my collaborator on this book. Uh, it was a friend of his who we described our kind of methodology what we wanted to do was start out from a position of really knowing nothing at all about these birds and just see where serendipity and chance conversations and random encounters might lead us so we walked the streets of london between these green spaces asking people kind of pretty naive and deliberately dumb questions we didn't want to assume the role of experts but really say what what do you think these birds are? Where do they come from? How did they get here? And what do you think of them? So Gonzo Ornithology sort of meant all of that. You're picking up kind of urban myths, aren't you, from people as well, because people have their ideas about how, how the birds arrived. You weren't setting out to talk to experts, were you, like you say, but you did, you did in the end talk to a couple of experts, didn't you, just to sort of verify figures? We did. The first, actually, we ran into him on our first morning in uh, Kensington Gardens and he's there he's got his own YouTube channel he's a, a very dedicated ornithologist who is there as he told us proudly every single day of the year so he knows everything about the birds of Hyde Park and Kensington Gardens and he kind of delivered a five minute monologue about you know everything he knew about these birds and the habits that he observed wow and off the record was he a little bit weird <laughs> i think everyone we met is is wonderfully weird in their different ways and it was one of the joys of writing this book which became it was about the parakeets but it's also very much about the people and what people think about parakeets and how they're affected by parakeets very much yeah so in the book you disperse throughout the book these five origin myths about how the parakeets got here the historical spread of these stories is goes back to well, i think the earliest one is henry the eighth and the most recent one is um the 90s in broccoli clearly yeah. that one clearly <laughs> isn't true but there are two because this is a film about soho and about film there are two that are particularly pertinent to those topics could you t tell me about those because they're both of them are brilliant these were the two most popular urban myths we encountered i'll start in soho and this is i think my favorite origin myth of these birds that in 1968 jimmy hendrix who was living at the time in a flat um near carnaby street he walked <laughs> yeah he appeared on carnaby street holding a cage that contained a breeding pair of parakeets some people say they their names were adam and eve <laughs> and he released these birds as presumably some kind of psychedelic gesture of 
freedom or surreal peace and love, whatever, that they flew off into the sky. And that was the origin of London's entire parakeet population. And percentage-wise, the likelihood of that is around... It breaks my heart to say it couldn't be true okay. <laughs> because it's it's such a great story. And I kind of see them as this sort of lurid, psychedelic, swirling green, like kind of smoke pouring up into the sky. But it's definitely not true. Probably isn't. I suppose he may have released birds at some point, but not necessarily. It wasn't necessarily the kind of the, the origins of the uh, of the, of the great flocks we see now. Explosion. Mm. No. And the other one is the film related one. What's that one? I think lots of people would have heard of this one, actually. Another great story. It's the... A film called The African Queen, filmed in the early 1950s. And the film, as the title suggests, is set in Africa, it's in the Congo. But the the idea is that parakeets were brought onto the film set as extras, you know, as background tropical Chatter. flora, fauna, mm. uh, and then presumably either escaped from the film set or were released because they couldn't be bothered to do anything else with them. Now, Tim and I watched that film frame by frame and I challenge anyone listening to this to spot a single parakeet in the entirety of that film. We certainly didn't see them. That's what an urban myth is, though, isn't it? People, it, it's you want it to be true. It sounds good, and but I think just going from what I've read about the topic, which is basically your book, the most likely one seems to be they just come from domestic parrots that are released or escape or whatever, rather than just rather than one kind of like origin moment, like one big bang, you know? Yeah, people really seem to want. A big bang, as you say, the, the the one foundational event that has a you know often a charismatic celebrity attached to it. Yeah. But yeah, they've been <laughs> brought over here for probably thousands of years as pets, possibly by the Romans. The first time I saw them was in Crystal Palace, I think, about nine ten years ago. In this this area that's kind of surrounded by blocks of flats, so it's kind of shielded from the road and whatever. And I used to see tons of them in there. And then I used to see them in the trees along the canal in Little Venice when I lived in that area. And I live now on the fifth floor with a quite a big balcony with a big view of the sky uh, in Bermondsey. And there's all sorts of birds, but I've, I've never seen in this area any of the green parakeets. I don't think I've ever, ever seen one. And this could be explained, I think, by the fact that you, you mentioned in your book about this, they have this, they have a commuting time. They sort of get up and they have the brush the teeth and they have the breakfast. Then they go off to work along a certain route and they all turn left at the same point. That's absolutely fascinating. So and they don't go over my house seemingly. Yeah, that was um, that was a great discovery. As always, just came about through conversation, and it's this kind of empirical sort of knowledge that I talked about that people have just observed. They fly down certain streets at certain times of day, and we met people who could literally say, "Oh yeah, about five o'clock, they'll go down that street, they'll turn left at the corner, they'll go down that street, and they'll turn right." <laughs> so they they knew their routes. That's amazing. I lived on a on a narrowboat on the River Lee. Uh, for a while and and they'd fly down that up and down the river it was like a motorway twice a day they'd go south in the morning and then north at night people would often comment on how regimented they seemed like they're very sort of orderly and one man had the lovely observation they don't fly over the trees they fly through them yes that's lovely they do seem to go in straight lines like darts just kind of very direct from one place to another are the parakeets a kind of metaphor for London and Londoners? They just they do seem to be a perfect fit, don't they? I mean, they do in that they come from elsewhere. They have seemingly integrated into the life of London, into its its rhythms, taking advantage of what it can offer and doing it all with a great deal of, of pluck and confidence. You know, they don't hide away. They're, they are brash and loud and bright. So, yeah, I think they 
they are a good metaphor for the way that many people do come to London and make the city their own. You asked the question in your book, are parakeets destined to become Europe's default domestic bird? Are they destined to become London's default domestic bird? This is the thing, and, and kind of throughout the book, this is something we're sort of wrestling with. I mean, we're not hiding the fact that both of us really like parakeets and admired them and loved seeing them and were obviously inspired enough by them to write this book. But there's always the question, are they driving out native British birds? Are they driving some species into extinction? They're giving woodpeckers a hard time because they choose similar nesting holes. You know, a lot of people had, I think, very legitimate fears about this new population that might be bad news for the old population. The main thing we landed at, and this is from, you know, eventually we did talk to experts and people seem to be kind of cautiously hopeful and saying at the moment, ecologically, they're really not doing a great deal of harm. They may be causing trouble in some instances. They may be interfering with some birds in some places, but as a mass, this isn't this sort of green apocalypse where they're wiping out everything that goes before them. There's not enough of them. You know, it may seem like there's loads, but there's not enough in terms of the London or the country as a whole. Possibly if they were to keep on growing exponentially, that that might change. But at the moment, people didn't seem that worried. I mean, the ecologists we spoke to, parakeets are definitely not their number one concern environmentally at the moment. Okay. You know, humans mean, are doing a much better job at, at oh, screwing things up for God, everything. Yeah. It's, not, it's not the fault of parakeets. And they seem to get an easier ride PR-wise than the grey squirrel. Why do you think that is? Because, it's, because they look nicer than grey squirrels? Maybe it's the novelty. It's something very new. And certainly for me and a lot of people I spoke to, there's just something joyful about seeing them. The first time I saw them in London, I was just amazed. I was completely, it felt like I'd kind of stepped into a strange dream. So you end the book with this, this close encounter of the green kind. Was that Regent's Park? That was in back in Kensington Gardens. Kensington it was where Gardens. we started our walks and where we finished them. Parakeets tend to not be where you expect them to be. So you go looking for them and there won't be a single parakeet to be seen or heard. And then suddenly they'll turn up when you least expect it. But we were going back to try and get closer to them because we'd kind of, you know, we'd heard stories about them. We'd seen them from afar, but we hadn't really had a, a close encounter. And in near the Serpentine in Kensington Gardens, we saw this sort of very strange vision. It was a woman with, with parakeets on her head, on her arms. She was holding out her arms on her fingers. And she had squirrels and pigeons around her feet, parakeets on her arms, and she was feeding all of these creatures. She was from Thailand, and she said that she came here because she missed the birds at home. She was obviously very homesick, and for her, this was just a, a chance to get closer to, to nature and to kind of be reminded of home. So it was there was something quietly moving about this, and we found a lot of people there who were from the Gulf, Saudis, Emiratis, and... There was something very sort of joyful about it. They were all, Everyone was there from a different place and they were kind of brought together and we talked to them in a way that possibly we wouldn't have been able to otherwise because we had this sort of shared experience of being delighted by birds. And don't they rip the food and leave, leave bits of fruit all over? They're quite messy eaters, aren't they? Like toddlers. They are. They really like they hold an apple up and they'll hack it to bits and you get bits <laughs> of apple kind of spraying over your, your hands and over the ground. And can they open a nut? I mean, if you give them a Brazil nut, they'll be able to open it or does it need to be shelled? 
just advice it's an experiment for the listeners. I haven't I haven't done, but I would I would like to see a parakeet try and open a Brazil nut. Okay, so if anybody's listening who wants to go down to the Serpentine and feed the parakeets, take a selection of nuts. I think they'd probably cope with a monkey nut, wouldn't they? One of the things about parakeets is they're extremely resourceful. So I think if anything could figure out a way to get into a nut, it would be a parakeet. My apologies if you were clinging on to the Jimi Hendrix parrot story or the African Queen one, and I've shattered your illusions there. If you'd like to read some more equally implausible origin stories, usually involving a celebrity for some reason, you can do that in Nick and Tim's book, The Parakeeting of London, An Adventure in Gonzo Ornithology. And if you haven't actually seen these flocks of parrots of which we speak, get your nose out of your phone and look up. They're everywhere. Incidentally, the music used at the start of that item is a song called Stanley the Parrot by the band Wicked Lester from 1969. When Wicked Lester dissolved, two members of the band, Gene Klein and Paul Eisen, changed their names to Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley and relaunched the band as Kiss, that quite rubbish rock band with the makeup from the 70s. Who'd have thunk it? Many thanks to Nick Hunt for coming on Soho Bites. I've posted links on the show notes where you'll be able to snap up your copy of An Adventure in Gonzo Ornithology. And there are more links there about Nick, Tim and their other work. And that's all at SohoBitesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. According to Professor Professor Wikipedia, there was a real nightclub on Wardour Street between 1952 and 1969, which was named after an exotic bird, the Flamingo Jazz Club. This was before my time, unfortunately, but from what I've read, it does sound quite hip and not ungroovy. In the 1920s, there were clubs called the Peacock and the Swan, both of which were glamorous, luxurious and a little bit decadent. But the eponymous nightclub in 1937's The Green Cockatoo doesn't really fit that description. When we first see the exterior of the club, it looks resolutely unglamorous, just an anonymous Soho doorway with a modest sign above and a single working girl leaning on a lamppost. She's given her silent marching orders by a portly policeman and slinks off into the night. The officer then stands in the doorway of the green cockatoo, enjoying the music that wafts up the stairs. This is not sophisticated big band jazz though. This is one man, Jim Connor, played by John Mills, leaning on a piano, singing a sentimental ballad to a clientele who seemed to appreciate his efforts. Sing that again, kid. You make me cry. As a matter of fact, I feel like crying all over again. Good. You've got a heart. You've got a soul. And you're sentimental. Oh, insulting me, eh? No, no, no. I can't watch people cry. Breaks my heart. 
We soon learn that Jim's brother, Dave, is something of a dodgy geezer and has got himself in trouble over a greyhound racing scam with a sinister-looking cove called Terrell, a Soho gangster played by Charles Oliver. Not that funny, Dave. We're betting a lot of money against Huntsman in the fifth. We depend on you to see that he does not win. That's the whole story. Yeah, not quite the whole story, Terrell. <laughs> the only part you're forgetting is my advance. You're going to see that Huntsman does not win? Right. How? Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll put a bit of chewing gum under his left front foot or give him a long drink of water just before the race starts. Cool, it's a pity too, you know. He's easy, the best dog in the race. Well, here's our part of the bargain. Be sure you keep yours. Terrell hands Dave a large wad of notes as payment for him nobbling the dog called Huntsman. But Dave decides instead to put it all on Huntsman to win, which leaves Terrell severely out of pocket and Dave in grave danger. With Terrell seeking retribution on Dave and by association Jim too, Dave attempts to flee London but is attacked and wounded by Terrell's men at a train station. Becoming ever weaker from an unseen stab wound, Dave encounters Eileen, played by Renee Ray. She's just arrived in London and knows nobody, so Dave says he can take her to a local, cheap but respectable hotel. His ulterior motive is that he'll be able to hide from Terrell's gang there and make a phone call. Unfortunately for Dave, the stab wound is going to do for him, and as he loses more and more blood, his life begins to seep away. As he collapses onto Eileen's bed, his days and indeed his minutes are numbered. He must warn Jim. Excuse me, miss. Would you do something for me? Of course. Please, take this message. What message? Please tell me. You're ill. Yeah. I'm all right. Now sit down. Loose my tie. Find my brother. Green cockatoo. Tell him tell. I don't understand. What's his name? Connor, green cockatoo. Tell him, Terrell. Promise. I promise. Thank you. <gasps> You're hurt. No, I'm through. I'll get a doctor. No, no, doctor. Oh, wait. Here. Cut away my shirt. Connor. Green cockatoo. Before breathing his last, Dave has handed Eileen a knife to cut away his clothing. When the hotel receptionist enters and sees a dead man on the bed and Eileen standing over him clutching a blade, she assumes the worst. Eileen, understandably in a state of some agitation, hightails it in search of Jim Connor at the Green Cockatoo. Based on an original story by Graham Greene, the plot of the Green Cockatoo is on the light side, but it's only just over an hour long, so it, it, it doesn't feel too thin. There are some great performances from the leads and from many of the supporting characters. There are comic moments that are adequately comic, and it has a bold visual style. You could call it noirish, or you could claim it was influenced by German Expressionism, and both of these would be reasonable things to assert when you consider that the director was the American, William Cameron Menzies, who was better known as a production designer, and that it was shot through the lens of Mutz Greenbaum, who had begun his career in German silent cinema. Robert Newton is particularly good, chewing up the scenery as Dave, Jim's doomed wild boy brother, so it's a shame his character is bumped off so early on. The Green Cockatoo is, in the eyes of this humble podcaster at least, an entertaining watch, elevated above some of its contemporaries by its strong performances, confident use of humour, inventive camera work and its unexpectedly gritty edge. John Mills throws a mean punch and can tap dance really well, but... 
And this became something of an obsession for me as I watched it three or four times this month. Some of his dialogue is weird. He spends half the film talking this hybrid nether language, which is half cheery, cheeky, cockney, chappy, and half American gangster, lots of swell and dame and G. It's not really very convincing. Now listen, kid, you're tough, see? You've been singing around these joints for years. Coppers don't bother you more than flies in your beer. If they ask you any questions, just sass them back. See, you got nice eyes, kid. That's a cop, they've all got big hands. Hello? Give me so one, two, three, four. Terrell? Jim Connor here. Listen, I hear you guys have got some ideas about my brother Dave. Well, you better lay off, see? You'll have a lot of trouble on your hands. My second guest for today, Nigel Smith, as well as being a particularly knowledgeable contributor, is also a lifesaver as not only did he step into the breach and come on the show at short notice, not only did he find us a swish location in which to do the recording, he also put me in touch with my first guest, Nick, after I put out a mournful tweet looking for parrot experts. Nigel is a man who wears too many hats to list here in their entirety. He is a registered Islington and Clerkenwell tour guide. I recommend his Nerd Night talks on Alfred Hitchcock. He is the co-founder, along with Wayne Goodman, of a long-running film night in Tufnell Park, links to both of those, in the show notes and he's also one of the team behind Mark Kermode and Ellen E. Jones's Screenshots programme on BBC Radio 4. I knew Nigel hadn't seen the film before I asked him to come on the show so I began by asking him if he was pleased to have discovered the green cockatoo. I have really enjoyed this film. I've now seen it twice and what struck me when I looked it up was just the talent, both the on-screen talent and the off-screen talent. And it was actually the off-screen talent that drew me in. So directed by William Cameron Menzies, a score by Miklas Rocha, based on a story by Graham Greene. So these are all people who had huge careers, but very much working at the beginning of their careers. And then we've got on the screen, uh, John Mills and Robert Newton, again, quite early on in their careers, who had, you know, went on to huge fame in the later in the 40s and, and 50s. Yeah, we'll definitely get on to uh, the, the various personnel later on. I read it about it a lot described as a noir. We spoke briefly as we were setting up, and you're not of the opinion that... I mean, it is slightly early for noir, isn't it? It's 37 as opposed to 40s, 50s. But I think you think there are other reasons other than the, the date it that make a, it not a noir. It is a noirish film, for sure. The, 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 the Film noir is a very troubling term because you know there's a lot of debate is it a genre is it just a style when is the first noir nobody set out to make film noir you know the term is coined by french critics in the 40s you know they they sort of ascribe this bunch of american films to be um film noir and those are films of the 19 american films of the 1940s like you said this is a lot earlier this to me is a film that is influenced by the American gangster films of the 1930s. Those Warner Brothers films. The Warner Brothers films, the James Cagney, Edward G. Robinson, that sort of thing. And this is a film about, you know, low-level gangsters. What it doesn't have for me is sort of the tragic, hapless male hero, anti-hero, who gets in above his head in some hapless scrape and ends the film in uh, in tragedy. You know, we've got a char- one character in this film, Robert Newton's character, Dave, 
who he has that trajectory um, a little bit, but his story ends early on. Early on. I mean, it's his death that sparks the whole meeting, isn't it, between the two protagonists. And Eileen, Renee Ray's character, she's not a femme fatale, is she? So it would, is, is that a missing element as well? Eileen is definitely not a, uh, a femme fatale. I think what it does have that is, that is noirish is there is a visual element to the film that has kind of film noir elements. There's a really great chase scene through alleys and tunnels near embankment and in a derelict building, John Mills and Rene Ray are sort of in, you know climbing through this derelict building pursued by these thugs. And that has the, you know, the Dutch angles, the low key lighting, a lot of very dark blacks, which you definitely associate with film noir. So it's definitely got that. And interesting, the cinematographer for this film, credited, I think, as as Mutz Greenbaum, but I think later worked under the name Max Green. He was German, so he worked in the silent era in Germany in the 1920s. And, you know, that phrase, you know, Dutch angle, that comes, you know, Deutsch angle is, is where that originates from. So a lot of that visual style is what he would have grown up with you know in his early work and yeah there's definitely in this scene you're talking about the chase scenes and the alleyways and the tunnels and things i actually paused it and went to find out who the cinematographer was for that reason because i thought he's got to be he's got to have some kind of german influence and there you go he's a he's a german bloke yeah and again you know the grand green connection you sort of think a little bit about the third man when you're watching those uh they're slightly reminiscent of the sewer scenes in the third man as well does it feel like a kind of early version of Brighton Rock in a way as well? That was quite controversial for its nastiness, wasn't it, at the time? And this has a, an edge of nastiness you don't get in films of the era a lot of the time. There's a stabbing scene in the station, and one of the thugs is holding a knife uh, in front of the camera before... He, and then he does kind of... He gets spun around and stabbed a couple of times. It feels quite brutal, doesn't it? It does feel brutal. And there's also sort of high stakes. The fact that, you know, Robert Newton... The plot is driven by Robert Newton's character, Double Crossing a rival gang and you do think he is going to come a cropper mm. um so yeah there's definitely a hard a hard edge to it another thing that kind of made it stand out for me set it apart from other films of the era is the relationship between the two brothers dave and jim played by robert newton and john mills it's quite touching and there's a lot of love and affection between the two brothers dave is a bit of a he's a bit of a wild card he runs with the bad guys and Jim is sort of on the periphery of that, and um, he just wants his brother to be... Don't know, don't know which is older and younger, but they call, both call each other kid. Yeah, I, w- I assumed John Mills was the, the older brother. Yeah. Only because maybe I'm just sort of projecting, because he, he wants to be the responsible one. Yeah, and that seems... You don't see a lot of that. You don't see a lot of sort of like, you know, proper male relationships. It's all kind of like smoking fags and um, tipping hats at each other normally. Yeah, but they don't seem like brothers at all, because they've both got these very different... Faces. Well, faces, but also most significantly kind of accents and approach to... Uh, yeah. Just don't sound like... Is it too early to talk about accents or Americanisms? So it's a British film. Talk about the American pedigree of it, because there are two key people who are American. I mean, the director sounds Scottish, but he isn't. There's lots of use of words like swell and dame and all this kind of stuff. I found that quite jarring. It's very odd, but it's one of the things that I started to really enjoy about the film. Like, what an what an oddity it is. So, it's directed by William Cameron Menzies, who's most famous for being a production designer. He won the very first Oscar for art direction, you know, the very first Oscars. And he came to Britain because Alexander Corder had hired him to 
direct Things to Come, which is this incredible sci-fi movie that H.G. Wells wrote. So he's he's American. And then although Graham Greene has got the credit for sort of the story and scenario, the script is by another American called Edward O. Berkman. And it's produced by an American, William K. Howard, who's also a director who, who made other films in Britain of this sort of crime genre as well. So I think more than anything, the film is a deliberate knockoff of American gangster movies, I assume, to try and win an American audience. So it is very odd. I don't know if people in Britain in the 1930s were calling each other dame and saying things were swell and talking about their kid brothers. Very strange. If it was an appeal to an American audience, it doesn't seem to have worked according to some of those reviews that you picked out. And also it was it was delayed the release, wasn't it, in the States? Yeah, so the film, I mean, the date of the film, if you look it up, is 1937. It didn't get released in the UK until 1940 and it didn't come out in, the, in America until 1947. So a long time after. And by 1947, John Mills, Robert Newton, uh, very well-known stars, somebody we've not talked about much, Miklas Russia, the composer, has won an Oscar by 1947 for Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound. So it's got this very high pedigree by 1947, and I can imagine it would be a disappointing film if you were expecting that on-screen and behind-the-screen talent. It's a, a, a low-key movie with this odd... It, it looks like Brits trying to be American. Yeah, and you'd think that somebody on set would say, hang on a second, old chap, we don't actually talk like this. Who knows? But again, I think I think that's what they were going for. I th- I'm sure it's deliberate. Do you have some examples of uh, American reviews? Yeah. Well, it wasn't particularly well-reviewed in Britain either, but the review from Variety from 1947 is very scathing. This is some of, some of the highlights. With British filmmakers currently in an all-out effort to secure more playing time for their product on US screens, they should take steps to prevent the export of films like The Green Cockatoo to this country. Cockatoo is slated for low grosses, even in shooting gallery houses, basically flea pits. It says at the end of the review, the film was produced by William K. Howard and directed by William Cameron Menzies, both American. They should have known better how to treat the story. That's really sad. I mean, does it stand up in its own term? Do you... Do you because I, I did enjoy this film, and not in a way that I often enjoy these old films of, oh, it's a historical kind of, you know, little nugget of interest. I did, I found it quite gripping, and I found the performances good, and... I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. I think it's a fun film. I like these sort of genre crime movies. The thing I loved about it, probably more than anything else, is in addition to, you know, the stars, there's sort of three or four kind of cameo performances with characters who've just got a couple of lines that don't really they don't all particularly serve the plot and are very very odd so when Eileen our heroine gets off the train in London for the first time she's confronted by this this weird guy now you're in London it's a vile and wicked city but it's lovely you will be in danger you're alone what are you going to do well I, I don't know Going to some hotel. I really don't know. What do you advise? I cannot give advice. I am a philosopher. Phone Whitehall 1212. Whitehall 1212? That's Scotland Yard. They'll take care of you. There's a phone box there. You must not be alone. Goodbye. Goodbye. 
there's a butler at the end of the film, which again sort of feels like there's always butlers in 1930s American movies. And this butler, I think Pompero is his name. He's got a ridiculous name. Uh, uh, Prothero. Prothero, yeah. I hope you'll pardon my appearance, sir. I, I wasn't expecting visitors. Oh, that's all right, Prothero. Governor away? Yes, sir, unfortunately. And has been for a long time. You get a bit fed up with yourself, don't you, Prothero? Been all alone? I do find it rather tedious, sir, compared with my last situation. Last situation? Yes, sir. Lady Diana was, if I may say so, a bit of a goer, sir. One of them bright young things, eh? Precisely, sir. Sixty-four she was, but quite a stepper, sir. Quite a stepper. Quite a stepper. I take it you mean she was quite a stepper? Yes, sir. Rally Ray is good, but my favourite female character in this is the hotel maid who sort of begrudgingly gets her a cup of tea when she arrives at the uh the majestic hotel at the majestic hotel majestic. and definitely not eileen marzen is the name of the of the actor but she's just got this amazing kind of world weariness that i really really liked you didn't have to kill him to get the money little fool now you're in a fine mess you're laying for this I didn't do it. He was ill. I was just trying to help him. The police will have a good laugh over their story. Where's the money you took from him? Maybe a good lawyer can help you. Where's the money? What is it, Lily? And then there's another oddball that she meets who gets a lift outside of the Ham and Egg Club. Yeah. It, brilliant. It, it, Wish I knew where that was. Yeah. By a, you know, a bloke who's drunk. My dear young lady, do uh, come in. Come, will you come. give me a lift? With the greatest pleasure, of course. I you know, more than the light. My, my, my fingers in that door as good as it might be. I say, this is stop. Let's go to Maiden. No, I want to go. Oh, I've forgotten the name. Well, that's funny, so have I. <laughs> well, it's a place, the green, the green something. Yeah, I know, green chateau. You can get that at Maidenhead. No, it's a place in London, the green something. I know, the blue dragon. There's also a scene, Jim and... Eileen have they're going to jump in the back of a lorry to drive out of London. So there, there's a scene that we'll see in the cafe where these two drivers are saying, this coffee's disgusting. That's the best coffee on the market. You can't touch it at the price. Who wants to at any price? Two coffees, please. Hello, Jim. OK, Jake, we've got to go. Yeah, soon we'll get lightning started. Easy one of his moves again. And I'll tell you what I think of your blinking coffee when I come back. Come on. Really? And the sing song as well. There's a scene where Eileen is on the run from the police and Jim has agreed to cover for her and pretend that she is his singing partner, but she can't sing to save a life. Handsome so and so, what's his name? Smokey Joe. Who goes sneaking round at night, rhythm in his shoes. Everybody wants to know. Say, what's his name? Smokey Joe. He's here. There's no reason why that scene had to exist other than for comic relief, because he could just say, this is my singing partner. They didn't need to do the song, you know. Did you enjoy John Mills' song and dance performance? I was impressed by his dancing. I didn't know he was a song and dance man. No, I think he was, I think he was you know, definitely treading the boards as a young man. But again, that's one of the things that sort of struck me, comparing it to... American film of that era. You know, if you'd have got a nightclub, well, Cagney, obviously, great song and dance man, but I was thinking if it, if it was a club scene in an American film, it would be sort of a 
kind of a sultry American, you know, be a female singer rather than this sort of, I don't know if it's a slight sort of musical type song or an Irish ballad that he's he's singing. Yeah. People seem to love it. They did enjoy it. The policeman outside stops his beat to have a listen in. And that's another, actually, another little detail. He, um, you see a prostitute who kind of catches the eye of the policeman and sort of strolls on without a word. Yeah. Uh, another little lovely little bit of colour. Sets it up as Soho. I did this series, Kino Quickies, Quota Quickies, and we always debated in, in that series, is this a Quota Quickie? Is it not a Quota Quickie? And you know, it's a bit like categorising something as noir. There's not a, like a, a tick list, except there is a little bit of a tick list, which is very low budget, uh, normally not much longer than an hour, so I think it's tick tick so far on this film, and an American element to it, to the to the production side of it, because what they were doing was they were kind of hoovering up films to package up with the more lucrative American films and as B features. You could almost say that's you know that that that, that box is ticked. Um, well, I think it is because I think from what I've read in terms of the views, it's, it's stated as a you know it's a twentieth century Fox release, but it feels a bit more it feels a peg or two up from a quota quickie. It has production values that are quite impressive in some ways. And maybe that's just a happy accident of the talent involved. So we were saying, you know, these people who were... I mean, William Cameron Menzies had worked on, you know, in terms of production design and art direction, he'd worked in the 1920s on Thief of Baghdad, you know, the Robin Hood, Douglas Fairbanks, later Gone with the Wind, but not, you know, only a few years later, and he gets a another Academy Award for that. Miklas Rocha, the, um, the composer, he had a sort of a dual career as... He did film scores, but was also, you know, wrote concert music as well. And again, within a few years, he would, you know, he's somebody very associated with with film noir. Double Indemnity, he did the score for. So maybe it's just a fluke of the of all this talent coming together that, that kind of made it a peg above some of these other quota quickies. People making the effort. Having said all that, and even though I've watched it three times in the last week, you recommended another film that was connected, the film, a film called The Squealer. Same year of production, but it didn't, it was, it didn't have this long delay like this did. And now, I have, I, the two are getting confused in my mind. So it, it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of forgettable as well. I find it quite difficult to retain all the details. Like this time next week, when the programme's been released, it will all have gone from my mind. Yeah, I think for me, I will definitely remember it as the film with all of those oddball characters that I really, really liked. And also, I haven't seen, you know, that's the earliest John Mills performance I've seen. That's the earliest Robert Newton performance I'd seen until I saw The Squealer, which he's in as well from exactly the same uh, period. Probably did it back to back in um, Next Door Studios. John Mills was in one of our quota quickies, The Ghost Camera from 1933, where he plays a supporting role. Very good. He did a lot of films in the 30s. I think this is probably, you know, one of the higher prestige ones. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think his fame really came in the 40s, all those films he did with David Lean and, you know, Great Expectations. He's playing this very, you know, boy. Mm. Um, and in this film, you know, which is made a few years before that, he's playing this responsible, more responsible, older club owner. He still looks very boyish. Graham Greene, I think we've established, did not write the screenplay, uh, but he's what scenario and story and story so what what that consists of he was involved in the production to some extent as well from what i can gather he wrote an essay in the 80s sort of like looking back on like the 1930s and he talks about going to denim studios and having lunch with william cameron menzies and he was very very close 
friends with Alexander Corder, although this isn't, I don't think this is a, a Corder film. It's definitely, you know, it's made at Denim Studios, which is Corder Studios, and a lot of the personnel are people who you'd associate with with Corder. Robert Newton, I think, was like a contract player for Corder. You would normally say at the, at the very start of the film, wouldn't it, in big letters. I mean, he never used to like, he didn't hide his line. No, actual, as they say, definitely not. So, yeah, I, I assume Graham Greene wrote a sort of a sort of a tough, very Graham Greene esque, morally ambiguous story, which was then adapted with this um, script that we get with this uh, idiosyncratic kind of American jargon dialogue in it as well. But I suppose it's interesting, given that you know what we'd later get from Graham Greene, Brighton Rock, Third Man. Fallen Idol. These are amazing mm. British crime movies. So we sort of maybe see a little bit of the the origins of it here. I wonder if because he was in his early thirties at this stage, those films like Third Man and Brian Rock, they feel a lot more assured. You can imagine he stamped his personality more on those films or his his style. Was this one? You kind of feel like he's gone. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You write what you want to write. Yeah. Because I think an older Graham Greene Mark said. Don't talk like that. Yeah, perhaps. But I think Graham Greene was also always very, like, he made a very distinct differentiation, like, publicly about, you know, these are my stories and novels that are sort of entertainment, and then these are the serious ones. And it's really only later on in his career where that gets really confusing. Like, you know, where where does that fall? Like, something like Third Man, which is very pulpy, but also brilliantly, you know, it's got all of that moral ambiguity in it, in it as well. Whereas, yeah, I think this is just a simple nasty crime story that he wants to tell thank you to nigel smith for coming on soho bites to talk about the green cockatoo with me and i'm very glad you enjoyed it it's always pleasing to introduce a film to somebody and they really like it it makes me feel like a hacienda dj in the 80s playing white label house records from chicago for the first time and watching the crowd go mad for it sort of i mean it's not exactly the same obviously I've put Nigel's Linktree link in the show notes from where you'll be able to find out about his walking tours, his Tufnell Park film night and his other work and you'll be able to join his mailing list from there too. And thanks again to the brilliant Nick Hunt. Also in the show notes are those links to Nick's various writings and to some interesting tidbits about parakeets, West End nightclubs of yesteryear and some other random odds and sods I discovered while researching this episode. That's all, of course, at SohoBitesPodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can do that on Twitter. The handle is at ByteSoho or by email on SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. If you feel like supporting the show, either by lavishing us with praise or by chucking a few pennies this way to help cover the running costs, the links to do that are SohoBytesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBytesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jingen Young. And until next time, in the words of the recently departed Jerry Springer, take care of yourselves and each other, and bye for now. <laughs>